uh, after taking a week off of Thanksgiving um, this past week. Uh, I'm excited to jump back into uh, Sunday night at Hype and as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians. Um, so as we start off uh, this lesson, I want to ask you a question. You know, have you ever gotten in trouble or witnessed someone else getting in trouble at school and the teacher getting upset as a result? How many of you have gotten in trouble at school or witnessed someone else getting trouble in school and the teacher getting upset? Yes, I think that's a, a thing that at least some of us, uh, most of us have witnessed. Um, you know, did you notice that there's a different tone in the voice of a teacher from regular teaching in a, in a setting to getting really upset at a student and be like, who, who can take it? Jack, how dare you? You know, like, you, there's a different tone in, in me just trying to teach you certain things and then me being super direct and getting upset because someone is not behaving as they should. There's a different tone in a coach from letting you know that you did something wrong versus just teaching you how to be a better athlete. I don't know if you've been in a sport, but a coach yelling at me because I messed up is way different than when I ask coach, hey coach, can you teach me how to do this better? And he te- there's a different tone and a voice. Well, in our passage today in 1 Corinthians, we see a change in the tone from the Apostle Paul toward the, toward the Corinthian church. In the first six chapters that we've studied already this year, this semester at Hype, Paul has been calling out the Corinthian church of their sin. He's like the teacher who's telling the person that's in trouble. He's the coach that's yelling at them for doing something wrong. He is calling this church out on their sin, specifically their sin of pride as they put focus on themselves rather than putting the focus on Jesus Christ. Now, starting in chapter 7, what we're going over today, the tone changes in Paul's writing. He changes from calling them out to that of teaching and answering some questions that the Corinthian church had um, at this time. So if you have a scripture notebook with you, please meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll be going over the first 16 verses of chapter 7. Uh, if you do not have your scripture notebook with you, I have the words on the screen. To kind of uh, give some context of chapter 7 before we just start reading, in this chapter, Paul is addressing a question about sex from the Corinthian church. We see Paul giving a teaching about biblical sexuality and what that looks like. And so with that understanding, so you're not caught off guard when we read the very first verse, uh, let's have our pens ready. Underline or circle anything that catches your attention uh, that you find meaningful or, or that you have questions about. If you have a piece of paper, reference that verse down that you find interesting. Um, so let's start reading together from verse 1 of chapter 7. Verse 1. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because sexual morality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does, and in the same way a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am, 
but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am, but if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. All right, let's pause here for a moment. We read the first nine verses. We'll read the the rest of the passage later, but I want to address some things in these verses first. In verse 1, what do we see in verse 1? We see quotations. What does quotations mean? That means that he is quoting something that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul. So the Corinthian church had this question, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Now, initially, this seems like an odd thing to say, but if you remember what we've been discussing in the previous two chapters of 1 Corinthians, we see that the Corinthian church is very much divided. If anything that hopefully you've seen in the first six chapters of Corinthians is that there is almost no unity whatsoever. The only unifying thing is that they're all divided. Like, that's how divided the Corinthian church is. And um, and it, this division includes their stance on how to glorify God with their sexuality. You know, in verse 5, a couple, three Sundays ago, we talked about the Corinthian church unwilling to discipline a man who is having sexual relations with his stepmother. In chapter 6, we see that people from the Corinthian church were engaging in sexual relations with prostitutes. And we also see in the Corinthian church that there are people who go there that have had a history in homosexuality. And now we hit chapter 7, and some people in the Corinthian church, they don't think it's good to have sex at all. And so we see like two extreme camps here. One group says, you know, do whatever you want to do. Whatever makes you feel good, do that. And then you have the other group saying, you should not have sex never, ever, 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 period. With people all over the place, all over the range, and with all various understandings, it is um, safe to say that the Corinthian church was struggling at the core of all their divisions on their takes on sexuality, They're struggling with this question of what is biblical sexuality? What is biblical sexuality? That's the big question that we're going to tackle tonight. What is biblical sexuality? In Paul's response to this premise, this question, he writes verse 2. But because sexual morality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. Each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. Now, from this verse, we actually see a lot of theology about sex. And we see a, lot, a, a, a foundation to build what is biblical sexuality off of. We see this. We see that God designed sex to only happen in a marriage relationship between a biological male a biological female. This is the context. You're going to hear me say this a lot. This is the context for biblical sexual relations or any sexual act. This is the context that God has designed for sexuality to be lived out. So, now, I'm pretty sure that no student here is married. I think it's safe to say no student in here is married. So you might be asking, Kent, does this even matter to my situation? And I would say yes, 
Why? Because even though this is the context that God created, the temptation to go outside of that context is a real temptation. I was talking with someone uh, just last night. Amber and I, we were over at a friend's house for Friendsgiving. And uh, we have a friend that went to Pekin High School, so not far from here, about 35 minutes. He shared a story that uh, when he was in middle school, there was a sixth grader who got pregnant and had to drop out of school. Sixth grader. You get pregnant by having sexual relations, so therefore you can conclude that a sixth grader was tempted with having sex outside of the context that God designed for. So I would say the temptation to go outside of this context is a very real temptation. And to kind of give you some heads up, our student ministry starts in the sixth grade and goes through 12th grade, so no student here is exempt from that. It's something that we're all can be tempted with no matter how old we are. Now, this means a couple different things. This means that sexual relations between a girlfriend or a boyfriend is sinful. Why? It doesn't meet the marriage standard that God has. It doesn't meet the marriage standard that God has. Two, sexual relations between an engaged male and to an engaged female is also sinful. Why? It still doesn't meet the marriage standard. It still doesn't meet the marriage standard. And I'll share this with you. People who are engaged, it is a real temptation to say, hey, you were engaged to be married. We've already exchanged desires to marry. There might have even been a ring exchanged. Oh, why can't we just engage in sex or have sexual relations as an engaged person? Still not married. It still does not meet the context that God designed sex to be in. Sexual relations in a homosexual situation, male to male or female to female, is sinful. It does not meet the context. It does not meet the standard of biological male to biological female in a marriage. There's something that's not meeting that standard. It's missing the mark. So again, the context, I said I was going to say this a lot, the context for biblical sexual relations is marriage between a biological male and biological female. Now, I want to look at something real quick. I want to look at this next question. So we've kind of gone over what the context is. I want to go over the motivation. You know, what should the motivation in having sexual relations in marriage be? What should the motivation in having sexual relations in marriage be? This is kind of going a little bit deeper. It's not just the action. We're looking at the heart attitude. And we see the answer in verse, verses 3 through 5. First Corinthians, so go back to verses 3 through 5. We see this answer, what the motivation should be. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive, do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. From these verses, we see this, that biblical sexual relations are motivated by the desire to serve the other person above serving yourself. 
Biblical sexual relations are motivated by the desire to serve the other person above serving yourself. That means that, that even if you have the context right, a marriage between a biological male, biological female, even though you have the context right, that if my motivation is about serving me instead of serving my spouse and having sex, that it can still be sinful because my heart attitude is one of selfishness. It can still be sinful because my heart attitude is all about glorifying myself instead of glorifying God. So even though this is the context and motivation for sexual relations, the reality is is that we live in a sin-fallen world. And this started in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and has continued till this day. And it has twisted God's design, context and motivation, for sex. People have disregarded the context. People have disregarded the motivation for sex and have used it selfishly and have abused the gift, the gift that God gave humanity. Now with that, I want to say this, and this is going to be a little bit more of a somber moment, a serious note real quick, is that if you've been a victim of sexual assault or unwanted sexual relations, I want to say that it was not God's design for sex to overpower the helpless. That it's not God's design for sex to be, uh, for someone to take advantage of someone else. And I want to tell you that, that I and all of our hype leaders grieve alongside those who have been mistreated sexually. And if you've experienced any sexual assault or unwanted sexual relations, I encourage you to talk to either myself or to one of our uh, small group leaders that you have. Because here's the reality. Even though you don't think it happens, maybe you've, you've lived in a very loving home and you have a really loving friend group and you don't think it happens, it, it does. Unfortunately, there's broken homes. Unfortunately, there's sinful people that go to school that are only out there to serve themselves. And so this, this is a real thing, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. So if you don't feel comfortable telling us in person, I encourage you to text me. Text your small group leader. If you need our numbers, you can always ask us afterwards. But this is a real thing. If this is something that you want help processing through, we are here to grieve and to help process alongside of you. Now, with that said, kind of going into that, Dave, uh, if you were here this morning and heard the sermon, Dave preached the same passage because we're both going through 1 Corinthians. In his sermon, Dave said that people view sexual relations in three ways. Three ways. One, sex is a God. Sex is gross. And three, sex is a gift. There are people that look at the Bible and what the Bible says about sex and the context and motivation, and they say, I don't care. I don't care what the Bible says. Sex is something that I desire to pursue because it makes me feel good. In this case, the person who does this and takes this stance is saying, God can't satisfy me, but sex can. And in the reality, they're looking to sex as sort of of a God, a kind of God, something to satisfy a void where only God should be. They're looking for sex to have that kind of power in their life. And so this person would say sex is, is like a God to them. Then there are people who say, or they see what the Bible says about the context, about the motivation that we talked about, and they say, you know, this looks like a lot of rules, and therefore I don't want to do anything with sexual relations. And if we stop here, ironically, we find ourselves in the same place that the Corinthians are currently in. Some people say, do whatever you want to do, whatever makes you feel good. And there are some people that say sex is gross and should be something never to do. 
But there's a third way to look at this topic of sex and sexual relations, and that is a view of a gift, something to enjoy within the context that God has set in marriage, a gift not just for our enjoyment, but for uh, in order to serve our spouse, our future spouse in marriage. Just because married people get to experience this gift doesn't mean that a single person, and we've already established that no student in here is married, it doesn't mean that the single people don't have their own gift, that they're somehow left out and they're not given an opportunity to receive a gift. I want to I continue because this pops up in our next section of 1 Corinthians. So go back to your scripture notebooks, verses 6 through 9 say this. I say this as a concession, Paul says, not as a command, that I wish all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to them married and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. For if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. Now, I'm going to break this down so it actually makes sense. But first, I want you to underline verse 7. I want you to underline verse 7. Verse 7 is important because it shows that a single person has a gift just like a married person can experience a gift. In a marriage context, they can experience this gift of sex. Then you might ask, well, what is the gift for the single person? The gift is being able to live a life without having to consider other people in their life when trying to serve God. I'm going to break this down because I know on the front end, this gift doesn't seem glamorous, but it is a gift, and I'm going to break it down. The gift of being able to live a life without having to consider other people in their life when trying to serve God. This means this. A Christian, a believer, single, not married, doesn't doesn't have any kids, they can go and serve God wherever God calls them, and they don't have to first consider how their decisions will impact their spouse or impact their kids. They can just get up, and they can just go, and they can just serve God. And Paul says that's a gift. And for single people, it is. To be able to say, you know what, I don't have to ask a spouse for permission first. I have this desire to go serve God in this way, to go do this activity to spread the gospel, guess what? I'm just going to go do it. I don't have to ask other people around me first. Now, I, again, this doesn't seem like a glamorous gift, but I wish someone had told me this when I was sitting where you're sitting. I wish someone would have told me this when I was in middle school when I was in high school. Now, I've gone through all three stages. You know, at an early age, I would have said sex is gross. I don't know if your parents were like this, but whenever something came on TV or where two people were kissing, they're like, cover your eyes, and they would say, ew. Am I the only one? No? Ever? No other people were raised that way? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I had this understanding that, oh, anything sexual in nature is gross. I was, I'm supposed to say ew and cover my eyes. You know, once I became a teenager, I was exposed to sexual sin in the form of pornography, which led me to think that sex could satisfy me. And so, in other words, I took the stance that sex was like a god. 
It could satisfy a hole that only God can. And I don't think I've ever viewed sex as a gift, that third camp. I don't think I've ever viewed it as a gift until after college. To be honest, during that time of singleness, I thought, I thought the gift of singleness was just the simple fact of not desiring sexual relations. I thought that if someone didn't want to talk about sex, didn't desire sex, I was like, oh, that's the gift of singleness because they obviously don't desire to have it. And I, was, I never understood that the true gift of being sing, single was to be able to serve God without having to consider others. I didn't understand that until I was married and for me, singleness was something to avoid at all costs. I did not appreciate my seasons of singleness. I feared being alone, not realizing that God was ever with me, that God could use me in that season, not being, um, not being hindered by having to care for other people um, close to me. I didn't realize God could use me in that way that... Um, is, is a gift, is unique and special in that season versus being married. So I say this to you, because again, we've established none of you are married, no students in here are married. I say this to you, view your season of singleness as a gift. Because I never did, I never understood this, and I missed out on some things when I was in middle school, and high school, and when I was in college. You can call me, I, I, I was... I was a little girl crazy. Amber would admit to that. Like, we've talked about this. Yeah, Amber's shaking her head. Yes, I was. I did not appreciate the season of singleness. So view your season as a gift. Use this time in your life to serve God and to glorify Him. Use this time to serve God and to glorify Him. Okay. I got a couple minutes left. We got to finish up reading this passage. So let's open up your scripture notebooks again. Get to verse 10 through 16. Again, underline anything that you find interesting or you have a question about. Verse 10. Let's go through this quick. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. The husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, say this to the rest. If any brother has an unbelieving wife, she is willing to live with him. He must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. If the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. That's a lot. I'm going to summarize it so we can get to the end of what I want us to discuss tonight. First, when Paul writes, I, not the Lord, it's not saying that this part of Scripture is not inspired by God. It is. He's just saying, hey, Jesus didn't actually say this while he was on earth, but I have received revelation from the Holy Spirit, who is equally God, different person of the Trinity, to write this to you. And so we can still take this as inspired scripture from Paul. And what Paul is writing here is the context for what does, uh, what's appropriate in God's eyes for marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And if any of you have questions, because I want to give you as much time in small groups as possible, if you have questions on what Crosspoint stands, if you have questions about what's appropriate for remarriage uh, and what's appropriate 
like a situation to divorce from marriage, there is a great article on Crosspoint's website to go read that. If you want that, I can print that out for you. Um, but I want to go over quickly a practical takeaway from this. Because you might think to yourself, divorce, remarriage, Kent, I'm a teenager, please. I haven't even thought about marriage, let alone what's appropriate situation for divorce and what's an appropriate situation for remarriage. Where are we going with this? I would say this. Before you get married, you have to start dating. So students, choose wisely who you date. If you don't want to have to deal with the messiness, the brokenness of divorce and what situation is appropriate for divorce or what situation is appropriate for remarriage. Now, there's a beginning in that timeline, and it's choosing wisely who you date. You know, if you're a believer, is the person that you are interested in, do they confess to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life? Have you asked them that question? Have you asked them that question if they trust, have trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Do you honestly think they love Jesus more than you love Jesus? That would be another question I would ask yourself. The person that you're interested in, do you think they actually love Jesus more than you love Jesus? Because if the answer is yes, then you know that that person is going to point you to Jesus every single time you have a question, every single time you have a hardship or a trial in life when something goes wrong and something goes bad, they're going to point you to Jesus. They're going to call you out on your sin. They're going to point you to the gospel. Pursue someone who will lead you to Jesus so that if God allows both of you to be married, you will glorify him in marriage until death do you part. Find someone who's going to lead you to Jesus. Choose wisely who you date. Because if you start dating an unbeliever and you're a believer, they could negatively influence your relationship with God. Don't believe me? Talk to me later. I've lived it. It's not a pretty sight. It causes a lot of heartache, a lot of pain. Choose wisely who you date. Make sure they love Jesus and trust Him as their Lord and Savior. If you're an unbeliever and you've never confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, I'll just put this warning out there. The person that you're interested in does love Jesus, does confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you don't, don't be a stumbling block to them. Don't do it. Don't tempt them. Don't drag them with you if you don't confess Christ as Savior and Lord, and they do. Set yourself up well. If you truly desire to be with them, maybe you should actually consider why you don't confess Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. Have that serious conversation with them. Pastor Dave and his wife Heather. Heather shared the gospel with Dave, and Dave got saved. So they were considered then equally yoked, or they were both believers when they got married. 
So maybe you should ask that person why they confess Christ as Savior and Lord. Have that conversation with that person if you realize you don't confess Christ. Now, I want to end with this quickly because, again, I want to give you as much time for small groups. You should care about what the Bible has to say about sexuality. This is my last slide, last statement. You should write this down. You should care about what the Bible has to say about sexuality. Why? Because as a human, you are created for the purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And living out that purpose includes obeying God's commands on how we are to live out our sexuality. Now, if you find yourself thinking, you know, I've sinned in this area of sexuality. I have not always glorified God with my sexuality. I want you to know that God loves you and that Jesus, God's Son, died for you and paid the price so that you can be forgiven and freed from any sin you've ever committed. So, if you've never confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life, you can do that tonight. You can talk to me. You can talk to a small group leader afterwards, and you can do that. You can be in a right relationship with God and enter that tonight. You can be saved from your sins, and you can start to live out that purpose of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Now, if you already confess Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, and you find yourself struggling with sexual sins, uh, I want you to confess those to God tonight. I want you to have some quiet time with Him tonight after you leave here. I want you to pray. I want you to confess those sins, repent, ask God to change your heart. You know, God is big enough and God's strong enough to forgive your sins and to help you overcome any sin struggle you may have. He loves you, and he wants, to live, he wants you to live your purpose in being created in his image by glorifying him and enjoying him forever. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for tonight. God, thank you for passages like this in 1 Corinthians 7. As hard as they may be, as awkward as they might be to talk about in large group and in small groups, God, this is something that you've written in your word. You revealed your word to us in Corinthians. And I just pray that we would take it seriously, that we would have serious discussions in small groups, that we would be open and vulnerable in small groups, that we would talk to small group leaders with any questions that we have, that we would uh, put aside our pride and, and just ask questions to be honest with our small group leaders. God, I just pray that we would um, glorify you in our sexuality whether we're single, whether some of us who are married, God, I pray that we would live out the purpose to glorify you and enjoy you forever. God, we love you, we serve you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.